bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And you guys, it's been a couple weeks and I've missed you so much. Way too long. I know it's it. been a while. I missed I missed you. <laughs> you were sick last time. Oh my gosh. Okay, so <laughs> this is an ongoing ordeal. Yeah, I was really, really sick. Um, I really haven't been that sick in like years and years mm. and years. Um, so uh, I went to, what did I do? I threw out my back too, so that's another story. Um, so my back is sore, so I'm leaning forward. <laughs> Lean in! <laughs> I'm leaning in! <laughs> exactly. But we got I, Cheryl Sandberg the shit out of today. Yeah. So I got, I have, so I've been watching a lot of shows, right? I haven't gotten to Atlanta yet, which is on my list. The greatest. Right. But do you know about The Good Fight? Oh, yeah, the one that's the spinoff of The Good yeah. Wife. Yeah, I've yeah. not watched Have Heard Good Things. Yeah, it's I'm great. very excited to see it. I'm, I like great. to wait to be able to binge a whole slew of episodes together. Yes. So it's on season two. Amazing. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's a story that, as you said, is a spinoff from The Good Wife. And so they're lawyers. So Christine Baranski... And, um, oh, for those who watch Game of Thrones, Agreed is in it, so there you go. <laughs> um, and they end up working at a majority African-American firm. So there's a lot of female dialogue. Mm. It's mostly female dialogue. The story centered around the women. It's very... It's awesome. Yeah. And, of course, female and minority dialogue, I would say. Wow. Yeah. What Which a rarity. Rare, right? And it's still on CBS, right? It's on so. CBS. It's like they're all access channel. I don't even know what that means <laughs> because I don't have cable. So you may ask how I watch these things. I will not tell. <laughs> Same. Um, <laughs> and I also picked up, I also started binge watching season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, so good. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a great show. Where have I been? Because it's on season 10 now. Yeah, it is. Thank God for Netflix making it more available. Yes. Um, yes. I wish they would put up the back catalog because finding it is a little bit tricky and, and like the same quality once you get used to watching the Netflix. But it's so good. Yeah. So, so good. those are my two picks. Great picks. Great. Cool. Amy, what's new with you? Um, not too much. I don't know. I moved into a new apartment. So I've just been uh, nesting, getting settled, spending my tax return on some new furniture. Ooh, <laughs> nice. You know you're old when you are excited about new furniture. I am so excited about my new furniture. I got like a bigger bed and like... But you didn't just get any bed. I got an ND. I feel like we should be sponsored. So I could have gotten my bed for free, but I had to pay for it. But Listen. it's fine. It's fine. One day we'll be sponsored by some beautiful mattress company and we can live like kings. I hear Casper's Right now I sleep like a queen, so it's still good. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm exhausted, as usual. <laughs> Story of my life. Um, I was away in New Orleans for Easter. Oh, yeah. I saw so your Instagram fun. stories. Oh, my God. It was super fun. 
I was um, salivating over your updates. I uh, came back feeling like absolute trash because of all of the things that I ate and drank. You know, like <laughs> nary a vegetable in sight. So I came back and promptly started eating salads for every meal because my insides were just awful. Was it, um, did you have like meat sweats or something? Like protein? Almost. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Some uh, real good barbecue, some real good fried chicken. Oh my gosh, no. Yep. Oh. Okay, so I was That's talking awesome. to somebody earlier today, and we were talking about, because this person lived in Texas, and mm -hmm. I lived in Texas, and we were talking about the barbecue. There is no barbecue like Southern barbecue, and there's no barbecue like Texas Southern barbecue. I haven't had Con Texas barbecue. Controversial statement. I yeah. feel like that's very divisive. Yeah, I yeah. feel like anybody who's eaten Texas barbecue mm. knows what I'm talking about, but there's no fried chicken. Mm. Like right. Louisiana fried chicken. Right. We waited in line 45 minutes for this goddamn fried chicken. And? <laughs> it was Unreal. Was it worth the 45 minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. So there Some you go. mac and cheese. Oh! Yeah. Yes! I love that we're talking about food. This is so body positive right now. I, I love I always eating. talk about food. Yeah. I love food. Yeah. We could have a food podcast. I'm just going to put it out there. If we did, I would be all over it. <laughs> this is not a bad idea. I don't know what it would be like. I have no idea. It needs, it needs a hook, but yeah. I just, I'm always looking for a chance to talk about food. Okay. I love it. Do you have any, okay, so do you have any specialties in terms of regions that you pay attention to, or is it just... Or do you just have no. special, do you I, just I have like, favorites? No, I like, I mean, I like anything and everything and I like to try new things and I love to cook. So I think when you cook too, it gives you like a different kind of appreciation yeah. for eating out even and, and learning about new kinds of food because you're the like process. a little bit closer to it, right? So yeah, I feel like I just think about food all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so this week in feminism, let's get into it, ladies. Woo. So as we know, 2018 is a big election year in the U.S., and a historic number of women are running for Congress or uh, state governor office. Uh, it's also a big election year here in Ontario, as we have provincial and municipal elections. However, uh, women in the U.S. are addressing long-held gender stereotypes that would historically demonstrate that a woman running for office was unfit or inappropriate head-on. From breastfeeding on camera to sharing intimate stories of sexual abuse, women running for office are turning campaign norms on their head with a flurry of new ads that highlight once taboo topics. One candidate who is running for governor in Wisconsin, Kelda Royce, uh, breastfeeds an infant, her infant daughter in a recent video announcing her campaign. She says, quote, the idea that women still have to still have to walk this very narrow tightrope to be taken seriously and be seen as credible. I just think women candidates and women voters, they've had enough. So um, we actually are involved here in Ottawa, and I guess Ontario, um, in the Now What campaign, where we are looking to highlight women's issues, particularly gender-based violence, um, in the upcoming Ottawa and Ontario elections. And so if you are interested in helping us out, uh, let us know, send us an email, tweet us, and we will provide you with the information to sign up. But uh, what do you think about uh, these women using these types of images in their, in their ads? I mean, I think it's fantastic. I um, spent many, many years working for and um, volunteering with as well with Equal Voice, which is an organization to elect women uh, 
all levels of politics here in Canada. So I've had my like mind and energy in on these issues for a long time, and it's it's interesting that now it's um, people aren't trying away from expressing the fact that their gender identity has bearing on them as a candidate and what they bring to issues. Um, you know, often when women are encouraged to run, they're not encouraged to put their um, identity as a woman central to their candidacy. And, and so this is great because it's not trying away from that um, and kind of highlighting uh, that there is a to some degree a gender divide, but also an advantage that having that gendered experience brings to your candidacy and your perspective and your closeness with voters um, and, and a variety of issues. So um, I think it's fantastic. It's a long time coming and it definitely seems like there's a, a movement happening. Well, I'm always here for somebody breastfeeding in public. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag with them out. <laughs> I really am. I, I've seen it in... Um, uh, uh, under de un less developed countries, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I'm like, let me find the right word. Okay, and nobody cares, and that's cultural, yeah. right? So the fact that there is a very big problem with women who are encouraged to show their bodies and their breasts in a sexualized manner to um, to support men's desire, but not for breastfeeding a baby. Mm -hmm. Are you serious? I'm I'm here for anyway. That's my personal thing. <laughs> I I think it's and it's funny. I don't have children, so. <laughs> but when you need when the baby needs to eat, the baby needs to fucking eat. Mm -hmm. Is my problem. Is mm -hmm. my point. Anyway, mm -hmm. in this political um, story, I love the fact that they're just rewriting the playbook. In the story, it says, with a historic number of women running for Congress or governor in 2018, many say it's long overdue that female candidates stop conforming to a, quote, winning playbook written mostly by men. And I just, I think this statement can be expanded to everything. Yes. All, every playbook in business, politics, work, labor, mm -hmm. uh, everything. Entertainment has been written by men. And the fact that we are supposed to, the expectation is to conform to those so-called norms, those aren't norms. Those are gendered um, experiences that are played over and over in our culture so mm -hmm. that we may adhere to men's desires, ambitions, um, strengths, weaknesses, whatever, and I'm just, I'm just tired of it. And I'm, I'm here. For, I <laughs> to this story. I, I was like, I skimmed it over, Aaron, and I was like, oh, <laughs> this is a good one. And I'm so excited to be back too. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's really interesting that you bring that up, Erica, because I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, um, and they spoke to. I know she's not your favorite person, but the communications manager for Hillary's campaign, and she was promoting her book and said that, no, one of the questions she received was, well, you know, what kind of ideals, or how is Hillary treated unfairly compared to like men and like the ideals that we expect men to? And she's like, you know what? I don't know because she was the first woman candidate. So we don't know what it looks like for a woman to run for president. We don't know what we should be looking for 
for that female president because the on we've only ever had men. So how can we say that she should act this way instead of this way when there is no other baseline? Exactly. Mm -hmm. The baseline is what needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about it, I think why... I hear a lot of people saying diverse, diversity is a good example. So diversity is fine as long as everybody adheres to the cultural norms and expectations of white cis men. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you behave like them and absorb those, those ideals and that culture, then you're okay. You fit in. You're a good fit. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, but really what diversity is, is actually um, like changing that baseline to reflect that there are many experiences. And yeah, it's hard. Nobody's saying that this is not, you know, difficult and complicated, but what alternative do we have? to stick with the status quo, because mm -hmm. that's working real well. And by the way, men have fucked up. They have just fucked up historically, and I don't see how much worse they can, like how much worse can it be <laughs> with, if we open up these, these norms and these stereotypes and these, these cultural ideals as to what we should adhere to. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's interesting, I think, um, to reflect on how much appearance and presentation, whether in a campaign ad or in giving a speech, actually impacts our understanding of who can be a leader. Like, people presenting as femme, I mean, Hillary Clinton in the pantsuit isn't just about she had to dress like a man, but it's like looking looking corporate, looking the way a, uh, someone in a leadership position should look. And I think that is actually really harmful, but it also takes away from people whose experiences are very femme uh, from feeling like they could ever be in those places or expressing themselves in a way that works for them. And, and certainly tone and speech and how people speak. And, you know, she was commented on for how she laughed and how she, like, you know, like that coming off as, again, too feminine or not authoritarian enough or authoritative enough. Um, and that's all very damaging and restrictive. Well, yeah, there's always that, like, trope in the workplace where you, women, particularly executives, but women never want to be the woman in the red dress in the boardroom. You always wear gray or black or navy, just boring things. Whoops. To <laughs> make yourself blend in with mm -hmm. the suits. If I ever run for office, I'm just wearing floral everything because that's literally all that I own and I refuse to change. And I'm just going to say, like... You could win with that hair. I'm just saying. Thank you. I'm just saying. You could win with that hair. But, like, yeah. you don't see that. You know what I mean? Like, you don't see people being able to, to express in that way um, Well, visually. which is what made Michelle Obama's fashion... True. So... It was radical in a way. Radical. Yeah, totally. And, and, and it's genius. Like, I don't think that anybody's even explored how genius it is. The wide, the belts, for example. <laughs> okay? Remember she had her belt period? Yeah, yeah. She had the wide belt and then the skinny belt. She wore belts everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Floral. Yeah. Glitter mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is yeah. another one. Mm -hmm. We don't wear glitter. We have our daytime makeup and <laughs> our nighttime makeup. And I mean, those, that, that's still true, but... Yeah, but at the same time, um, she wore things that were relevant, mm -hmm. um, modern, and if you see, if you look at the difference between her and Melania Trump, Melania Trump has that boardroom, 
I make a lot of money um, look. Mm -hmm. Her clothes are very uh, streamlined. They're, she focuses on lines a lot, mm -hmm. and it's very structured. Whereas Michelle Obama was more like the A-line skirt. It was flouncy. It was free. Mm -hmm. It was free-flowing. And the reason that we're bringing this up is because I think that she shifted or tried to shift that norm of what leadership looks like. Totally. And thank you for bringing up leadership because I am so irked by these leadership conversations that I hear mm -hmm. in like corporate spaces and basically all white spaces. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, no, leaders eat last. Oh my God, that's the title of a book. Okay. There you <laughs> well, go. Well, there goes your book title. There goes You'll have to come up with another I know. one now. I'll go back to whip them out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Sacrifice yeah. and, 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 you know, enabling or in, engendering loyalty among your flock is a big, I say flock, yes, but it's a big thing. And I don't, I don't see why leadership is treated, A, as though everybody can be a leader because that's just a lie. Yeah. And B, we are espousing management ideals and confusing it yes, with leadership. Yes, totally. And management is there to ensure the status quo. Absolutely. A it's about leader has power. a vision. Yeah. And that vision may not be um, entirely implementable in the present, but you're marching towards something. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep people motivated and invested for this long haul future building, right? And it's actually much more challenging work, which is why, you know, I think leadership is best exhibited in, in social movements and yeah. people at the helm of those things who are, you know, take, it takes a lot of strength and, and a lot to empower people to remain invested when things don't seem likely to, be, you know, to on the, you're not always on the cusp of that greatness. It's actually like. And do you think these people would be, would have been chosen as no, as, no. as leaders? No, and no, I, because they didn't espouse yeah. the management look, the management ideals, the management structure. Right, and the but fact they that are you can, leaders. The fact that you can teach yeah. a cookie cutter course on leadership is also um, patently untrue. Because like you, I think you need to be coming from a place that is honest to who you are mm -hmm. and that it comes naturally to you. Otherwise then you're just play acting a role of a boss, which is not, again, that's not what real leaders do and, and how they, um, are able to actually impact change and, um, impart a vision. Yeah. Totally. So I guess in my authenticity is key. Totally. Yes. You yes. gotta do you. Yeah. You gotta do you. Um, one thing I thought was kind of interesting from this story was that um, the Democratic electorates are overwhelmingly women uh, compared to Republicans, where the electorates are more 50 50. So I think in the ads that we're, where we're seeing more women talk about sexual assault, sexual violence, and. Um, Breastfeeding, I think they're primarily Democratic, and I don't know that these types of ads even serve Republican women in the same ways that they would a Democrat. I think they would have to do it in a different way. I, I, they can't do them the same way. Maybe they can't even speak to the same issues. Right. But, you know, I'm pretty sure Republican women still care about health care, mm -hmm. for example. Yep. So um, it would... It, 
it, you have to know your audience. And at the end of the day, I don't think that Republican, you bring up a good point. I don't think Republican women can't do it. I think they have to choose the space and the, the people who they're right, doing it to, right. presenting it to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and the messaging could be different. It could be like, yeah, I'm breastfeeding. I don't give a fuck. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. Sarah Palin touting her family kind of thing. Like yes. mama bear, like, well, agra- like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like there, to, there, there are know? ways to, yeah. to do that, but still present, uh, you know, as a, like present that gendered lens. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would be, that would be interesting, though, to see a Republican woman do that mm-hmm. and to see how it goes kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. yeah, because, like, a lot of them are very anti-identity politics and using, you know, gender issues would be kind of doing that, so. Yeah. Oh, okay. But, different, <laughs> but it's a different kind of hand, and in a sense, they do play, I think Republican women do play to gender when they talk about their families. And being good mothers. That's the thing. It has they're to be just a doing it. They're, they're, yeah, yeah, but that's their frame. Like, they genuinely believe that. So that's their authenticity, right? Like, um, that they have this wifely role or this motherly role, and it is traditional, and they're proud that they are still upholding that, despite the changes in society or whatever, right? They're the stalwarts of those old traditions. But, to, but they're in a, but it, not to take away from the fact they are still presenting a gendered lens on their candidacy in some cases. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's about time that also the agenda is not, you know, made up by men. Yeah. Like, that's the other thing, is that men talk about the issues. We allow men to dictate which issues are important and which aren't. Yeah. And I, that's bullshit to me. It's just bullshit. And, you know, it's going to be really interesting seeing the provincial and municipal elections is to see if there's going to be a reverberation through these sort of processes um, having to do with Me Too and Time's Up, et cetera, et cetera, and just women and sexual violence on the agenda. Yeah, so just one more time, if you are interested in getting gender-based violence on the ballot or as an election issue in the Ontario and Ottawa municipal elections, let us know. We are, it, our, our hashtag for the initiative is now what ought, N-O-W-W-H-A-T-O-T-T. That's the hashtag. And uh, hopefully we can make it an issue. Yeah, we posted it actually on uh, our Facebook page, so you can sign up there. Uh, I posted it on Not In My Color Facebook page, so you can sign up there. Um, we tweeted out a link. We tweeted out a link. If you go to um, at W-I-C-K-D-C-H-I-Q on both Instagram and Twitter, uh, Twitter it's pinned to the top of the page, so you should be able to find it. Our next topic is something I think we discuss over the summer or early in the fall. Nova Scotia Court Justice Gregory Lenahan acquitted a Halifax taxi driver last year of sexual assault involving an intoxicated female passenger. Police had found the woman partly naked and passed out with the taxi driver holding her urine-stained underwear. Justice Lenahan, in an oral ruling, said, quote, clearly a drunk can consent. 
And he went on to explain that he had no direct evidence on whether the passenger had consented to sexual activity. As you would expect, the ruling created fury amongst women's, women's groups across Canada, raising questions about whether judges were keeping up with the law of consent. There were street protests, a petition that received 37,000 signatures, and 121 formal complaints to the Nova Scotia Judicial Council. It led to a private member's bill in Parliament on mandatory training in the law of sexual assault for candidates for the federal bench. It also led to federal legislation codifying that unconscious women cannot consent to sex. Because of the backlash, a two-man, one-woman committee reviewed the complaints at the request of Chief Justice Michael McDonald of the Nova Scotia's Court of Appeal, and they said that, quote, intense public concern had to be taken into account in assessing how Justice Lenahan's actions and words had affected public confidence in judges. But they stressed that the need to preserve judges' independence to decide cases honestly and impartially on the basis of law, of the law, and the evidence, quote, in assessing the impact of a judge's conduct on public confidence, we must act as watchdogs against mob justice. The committee said that, th that Justice Lenahan had shown no gender bias and was, it was accurate in his statement that inebriated people may still be able to consent to sex under Canadian law. But the committee also said that he's been clumsy in his choice of words. Quote, the use of ill-considered words by a judge in a decision can undermine the public's confidence in the judiciary just as much as the reality of proven bias, end quote. You know what, like, undermines the public's confidence? The two-man, one-woman committee that reviewed the complaints and then was like, oh, well, he's correct, but maybe he just said it wrong. What? Yeah, I, I, I really wanted to get Amy's take on this. Um, particularly around the fact that, I mean, this isn't your specific type of law, but like that under Canadian law, like what the consent laws. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the facts of this case are. The fact that she was passed out and they found her that way. She, no one gave testimony as to whether she consented shows me that, I mean, I, my understanding is that you have to have affirmative consent. That's what the code says. So if she's saying she didn't consent, there's no, and he has no, and he's not saying she necessarily consented. Um, I also, my understanding is that you can't consent when you're intoxicated and that's established law. So I have, I have no idea how this, I haven't read the decision. I don't think that would help me because clearly it's been acknowledged it's poorly <sighs> worded. Um, but I, I've, I have no idea how you get there. Um, and I, I think the takeaway definitely isn't that, it, and it's so shitty. It's like the, I don't know about in Nova Scotia, but certainly provincially, we've done so much work in advertising. The Wynn government like has gone out of their way to put up ads everywhere to remind people that intoxication, when you're intoxicated, you cannot consent. And they have those, those photos, which I'm sure you've seen like in bathroom stalls and on billboards of like a woman passed out and saying, cannot, con like on a couch, like cannot consent. Like, yeah. and, and we, and that's because, like, that is the law. That is the standard. It is known. But, I mean, it, it's, been, it's been law since the 90s. I think I said on the last podcast it came in when um, it came in through Kim Campbell's, like, reforms as, uh, when she was justice minister. And there is a huge societal misconception. 
And so despite all the work that's being done to make people aware of this, you have this judge who is completely like from the moon in his perspective on it. Like, I mean, I, I just don't, I just don't know how, um, and I, I, I also don't know what, what kind of work the crown did to inform and educate the judge through their, through their um, presenting their case. I'm surprised that they didn't have, like, because there's no end of resources. Um, they could have put, ex like, you know, aside from that, they could have put experts on the law up in front of him. They could have asked him to take judicial notice of, so like, some, um, you know, whether it's publica legal publications or, um, you know, interpretations on the code from the, from the Ministry of Justice. Like, a judge can take in, under advisement all sorts of things in their understanding of how to interpret a particular law. Um, and there's also a number of cases on the fact that can, you can't consent when intoxicated. So it's not that there isn't a body of jurisprudence that supports this either. This isn't a novel case. It's not a novel concept. Um, but again, having not read the decision, I don't entirely know whether, what, wh whether or not there was insufficient evidence. But it seems to me that she must have been tested. It was clear she was drunk at the time. And so it's kind of a no-brainer, but maybe there wasn't the evidence of her intoxication, but that doesn't seem to be what he's arguing either or what he's concluded. Yeah, it's really frustrating. Yeah, I, I was actually very surprised that uh, the judge was, or Justice Lenahan was cleared of misconduct um, because poorly worded or not, what he said, clearly a drunken consent, is very sloppy. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the type of thing that, like, a frat bro would say to his, you know, his mm -hmm. fraternity. Like, not a judge mm -hmm. in a professional context. Like, it's very, very bad. Well, I, I'm still stuck on this two-man, one-woman. <laughs> like, it looks like window dressing to me, first of all that they just included this woman so that she could provide cover for them to come to um, a conclusion that were, they were already partial to. It, that's just what it seems like to me. And mm -hmm. I, I, from the Crown, the judge, um, the, even the review board, I just, I just feel like, like the odds are stacked against us mm -hmm. from the from the from jump mm -hmm. and you know just be, and then they parade a woman on this board so that they can provide cover for themselves mm -hmm. I just I, like yeah so I, I mean I want to add a little bit more to the consent discussion and I'm also curious to know whether or not this has been judicially reviewed this decision um, aside from the fact that the the decision and the judge's own conduct was reviewed by this board it may also be judicially reviewed to a higher court so that would be interesting so I'd love to hear them weigh in but I mean just to give more context to the law on consent um consent is in it, it is in the part of the complainant so the person who was in the position to give the consent if they say they didn't consent it's it's you know it's it's based on their own state of mind at the time whether or not they wanted the sexual activity to take place, not the perception by the other person that they had consented. So in that sense, her testimony would be paramount. The, the other thing that's important is that being passed out, whether it's intoxicated or not, means that you can't consent. And 
if folks are curious about what the Supreme Court says about consent, they can go to um, R&JA, um, which is a case on consent that the Supreme Court considered. Um, and it's actually more or less a case about, if I remember correctly, um, kind of like BDSM practices. Um, and the idea of whether or not you can... Um, so, it, so in this in the fact scenario here, there, the JA was um, the accused, and he had his hands around the throat of his long-term partner and choked her until she was unconscious, which is something that they did. I think that the history was that they engaged in that sort of like breath play or whatever, what have you, um, and that she would be unconscious for less than three minutes, and then she'd be revived. Um, she testified that she consented to him choking her, and she understood that she may lose consciousness, but she didn't consent to what happened to her while she was unconscious. And so he did, you know, he engaged in other sexual activity while she was unconscious that she said was, um, assault, like, was assault because she hadn't consented to the particulars of what he did after that. And the Supreme Court said that it when a complainant, so that's the woman in this case, loses consciousness, she loses her ability to either oppose or consent to sexual activity that occurs. And so they find that such a person is, cons um, is consenting would effectively be negated um, when be their right, rather, to consent would be negated because they lost the ability to change their mind. And you have to be able to um, take back your consent at a moment's notice. So if you're out for three minutes, you can't do that. For three minutes, you have no ability to consent. Therefore, anything that happens to you that's against, that, like, period, anything that happens to you, period, is without consent and therefore assault. Um, and so that decision is really interesting because there are a lot of people in the BDSM movement who said, like that's problematic for our practices because I think like you can do uh, you can consent to a certain degree of things um, and and if you you know I want to be able to do that because I want to engage in breath play and, and I want to give direction and let the person be able to do what they want to me after a certain point with um, even though I may be unconscious or whatever else but the court says no you have to be able to take back your consent at any time. Um, and so if you, once you lose that ability to take back your consent or change your mind, you can't consent. So in this case, she's found, passed out, that, like, that should have been enough to say she didn't consent, aside from the intoxication. Um, but again, I, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand the reasoning otherwise. Yeah, how like, you get around that JA decision. Yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. Like, I never would have considered the the breath plate mm -hmm. angle, but yeah, that totally makes sense because my my law prof had a funny example. She was like, she was trying to get us to like problematize this this question, and she was like, well, what about if I'm laying on the couch, I've fallen asleep. She's like this older woman. It was just like very cute. And she was just like, what if I was falling asleep on the couch and reading a book and my husband came by and he kissed me on the forehead? Does that mean I'm consenting or not consenting? And it's, but like law is a lot of those problems. Like, to, like you have to take, you kind of do take things to those weird, but like in a sense, yeah, you can't consent. And that kiss actually could be sexual assault in the eyes of the law if you take this decision to mean what it means. Um, but it, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I hadn't thought of it in that way either. And, and, and it's helpful because it takes away, if people are confused about intoxication, 
set that aside, what about just the, uh, the fact that she was passed out in the back of the cab? Mm-hmm. Or, or if she blacked out, that's another point. If you black out and you have no memory, I would argue you cannot, you could not have, like, you were clearly at a point where you could never revoked your consent at the time. Um, but, yeah. Okay, so for our next topic, I want everyone to imagine that you're 14. I want you to imagine that you're earning money by babysitting, I don't know, for your church or something. You do this two nights a week. And when you're babysitting, you watch anywhere between two to eight kids while their parents attend service. You know, kids of various ages. Um, And then the, the time you spend babysitting, it amounts to four to five hours a week. And at the end of every month, you would get $100 from the pastor's wife, your boss, um, as pay. So this comes out to roughly $6.25 an hour for 16 hours. So as you get older, $100 a month doesn't end up being enough to cover your, you know, your growing teenage shopping habit, spending it on whatever you are. You know, shoes, clothes, makeup, video games. Phone. Oh, phone. I was just thinking of things that I would have, like, bought back then with my teenage, you know, like the sweatshirts that said Foxy on them or, like, low-rise jeans. (laughs) Wet and wild. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Imagine it's 1999. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So in order to supplement this $100 a month, quote-unquote, salary from the church, you get a part-time job at a fast food restaurant that pays just a bit more than minimum wage. Actually, which in Ontario is a lot of money. But when you were 14, you know, it wasn't that much. It was maybe $10 at best. It's maybe probably closer to eight. Um, but uh, you kept your Wednesdays and Sunday nights open to keep that babysitting job at church. So at some point, uh, the pastor's wife, again, your boss asks if you could start coming to church on Friday nights as well to babysit during the weekly prayer meeting. So logic would dictate that you would earn more money for these hours, you know, another two to three hours every week, another 12 hours a month. So you ask if she was planning to pay you for the additional hours. Her response is that she laughs in your face. Hmm. So a new book, looks at the teenage workforce, which the author says is an excellent social laboratory since the common explanations for why women earn less money than men, you know, such as leaving the workforce to become a mother to raise children, don't apply to this demographic. In one analysis of data the author uses, which was taken from uh, an American survey, a national longitudinal survey of youth uh, from 1997, which included almost 9,000 respondents between Born between 1980 and 1984. The Beyonce years. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> the Aaron G years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the author found that adolescents earn about the same amount of money when they're 12 and 13 years old. So $120 to $125 a year. And this is because the only type of work that teenagers can do at this age is freelance type things. Mm-hmm. Such as babysitting, tutoring, shoveling snow, mowing lawns. And once... Kids become 14 and 15 years old, boys start to make more money because they start getting into more employment type gigs while girls continue to freelance. 
So boys make an average of $400 a year compared to the girls' $266. The wage gap continues to grow from there, with 16 to 19-year-old girls making about $200 less than their male counterparts. The author says that one of the reasons why the girls stay in freelance work longer is because of their informal networks. She says, quote, those little networks make it easier for girls to find jobs, but they also make it harder for them to move out of these jobs. They're told, we need you, the child needs you, stay a little bit longer. Mm. And those networks also make it hard to ask for more money and negotiate pay. She continues on and says that race and class positions also play a huge role in the teen workforce as it does in the adult workforce. Quote, while affluent young white women are sought after, lower income women of color have a much harder time finding jobs, take longer to find jobs, and are often shut out of the workforce and often settle for lower paying fast food jobs resulting in a wider wage gap. This wider wage gap continues well into adulthood between white women and women of color, as black women earn about 63% of what white men make, compared to the 80% that white women take home. Um, and if you're interested in reading this book, it's called The Cost of Being a Girl, Working Teens and the Origins of the Gender Wage Gap. Yeah, I never considered this, but uh, it rings very true. Um, the, uh, the article that this comes from, they talk about this one, she uses an anecdote of this one girl who babysits for the same family between the ages of like 16 and 20, and her hourly rate stays, let's say, at $20 an hour. Mm -hmm. And at first, when she was 16, there was one kid, and then by the time she was 20, there were four, and she was still only making $20 an hour. I mean, it, it yeah, that's upsetting but it sounds really familiar and it's not unlike the I mean it's it's another extension of the emotional labor women are asked to do as part of their jobs yep um and leaning on those those sympathies um at then the expectation that as a woman you will do these things out of some kind of like innate goodness or um empathy compassion skills that are not monetized traditionally either and they're already low-paying gigs to begin with. Like child care workers notoriously get paid very little and definitely babysitters do too. Uh, you always see our parents bemoan how much they pay for babysitters and I, and I have sympathy for that, that, that it's expensive to like, have a kid. I mean, I don't know how, how much sympathy, but I have some. <laughs> but like those babysitters, those like kid babysitters and nannies are like literally looking after your kids. Like it is, all, it's a huge responsibility. Yeah. They shouldn't be getting paid a lot. Yeah. I, and you're going to ask them to stay later and give up parts of their life and like, and there's more children to look after, meaning more risk, more, you know, like liability that they're personally taking on and like, you yeah, it, it's really interesting um, when you think about this, the example of the woman who, or the, yeah, the woman who, from one child to four children, you know, with one child, once you put the kid to bed, you just have to make sure that no one breaks in, basically. Right. So you can kind of do homework, you can watch TV, you can kind of laze around, whereas with four kids... There are different ages. They yeah. go to bed at different times. Yeah. They require, They're waking up in the middle of the night. They yeah. require a lot more work and a lot more effort to entertain them. And for totally. parents to just say, 
oh, well, we need you. Like, who else are we going to get? You're so good. The kids love you. Is just guilt tripping them. And mm-hmm. it's entirely unfair because they wouldn't do it to a boy. No. Well, and a boy wouldn't do that job. It's a gendered position to begin with. They might do it for a bit. Mm, I don't know any man who ever Neither did babysitting. I. Neither do I. It's well, very so gendered. you were encouraged in BC to take a babysitting course where you like learned kind of CPR and stuff. I did it, but we weren't encouraged. There were <laughs> there were boys in the class. Okay, well, potentially. So my parents sent me to that class at a like local rec center or something. So I could look after my own siblings. And so... Which this is sounds a whole, very immigrant. I love yeah, it. Yeah, they're I like, love it. <laughs> like, the house could burn down. You, have to, you are, like, in charge now. <laughs> How um, old were you? I don't know. I can't remember. I've, I'm not very good with um, time frame, my own timelines and memories. But it must have been, like, 11 or 12. Mm. Just, I think, the age you're allowed to be left alone. But mm. I'm not sure. Is there a legal age you're allowed 13, to be left alone? 13, I think. Maybe it's 13. Maybe it's more. That seems old, but anyway. In any case, I don't... But I still, like, socially, do you know anyone who actually did paid gigs as a baby... Like, a male babysitter? And I don't know anyone now who has a babysitter who's not a girl. Like, Uh, think of all your friends who have kids. Do they have boy babysitters? No. Definitely not. I mean, I think part of that is... like I think the part of the reason why young girls get more roped into babysitting than boys is a maturity thing. Possibly, but it's it's still gendered. There's a gender oh, thing, and I yes. think the maturity thing is... A contributing um, factor. No, but but the maturity thing is true to some to a certain point, but I don't think it 100% it's true either. Like, there's certainly boys who are mature enough. Like, development isn't that, like, linear or... Like, it's gendered to some degree, but there's a point where that levels off. So there are definitely 16-year-old boys who could 100% look after kids. Like, my brother definitely could have looked after, like, you know, my kid cousins or something. Or, like, he's very responsible. Mm -hmm. He just, like, would never do it. And no one would think to ask him. Anyway, it's just, it's like, it's just another, it's totally, like, a a microcosm of, like, what happens in later life. um, Well, I I, I actually think it's more than that. I... I love longitudinal surveys because it's actually the type of survey that follows people as they get older Mm -hmm. over, like follows one cohort. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that there are a few things that I would just want to point out. Number one, um, at 14 and 15 boys start to make more because they start getting into more employment type gigs while girls continue to freelance. Freelancing and <laughs> the increase of freelanced work mm. is going to make this gender pay gap stubborn. Mm-hmm. And it's going to make it even more difficult to close I'm, because we have to start teaching women, girls, that their work is valuable. Totally, yeah. I, I think that... I. Actually, you know what? I am watching, so I'm watching my boyfriend, Reza's son, and the financial and sort of of direction he sends him in, and I'm just like, I bet you that girls aren't getting the same type of of sort of education. Mm -hmm. So the Mm -hmm. idea of working for pay, the Mm -hmm. idea that your time is worth something, is not something that we drill into girls like we do boys yeah. because girls are 
usually performing labor that is expected of women anyway. It is, and what it does is, is it sets a girl up to be that woman who always cleans the kitchen, mm -hmm. even though she is, you know, an analyst like everybody else mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. a lawyer like everybody else. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It sets up the expectation that women should do labor, some labor for free. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm thinking back to our like Black History Month special with Vicky Machama and how we talked about um, valuing your time and your skills in the workplace. Mm. Increasingly, we're going to have to do it on our own. It's the way things are going. It's the way where we are. Um, but what we're doing is we're not changing how we... Um, how we implement, how we think about that time money trade off for women. It is different. Mm -hmm. It is always different. Um, so I like also the fact that um, the informal networks for girls to stay in this type of freelance work. I hope these girls are sharing some wage information mm -hmm. because if Becky can get fifteen to twenty dollars an hour for one kid. Why can't Susie or Jacqueline or how, like, I, I think also the fact that women don't talk about money and wages is a big problem. Yep. And so when, I guess I'm, I'm doing a little parental um, expectations here, but as parents, look at the way you talk about money and mm -hmm. wage and earning money with boys and with girls. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, once we start sort of socializing girls to expect to get paid, that's sort of where, if we can get them early, that's sort of where they, I think, will be in a better sort of mental at least position mm -hmm. to say, look, this is what I'm worth, this is what I do, pay me. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think that's great advice. And I definitely never remember ever being taught anything remotely like that me neither no me neither and again it's just because I'm seeing it right mm -hmm. and I'm just like okay this kid is getting like really good you know financial like money and wage and, and working and so on and so forth are front and center mm -hmm. you know not all the time obviously no, no, but... right oh my gosh okay so I have a little anecdote <laughs> so for example have you ever played, it's like $6 at Walmart, Monopoly cards? Oh, no. Okay, so Monopoly has a card game. And it is the most capitalist thing you've ever seen. Uh -oh. But it's fun as hell. And I had to get used to, I used to lose all the time mm -hmm. until I started winning. <laughs> and the reason I started That's the title of your book. Oh, <laughs> yes, I love it. And um, it's true, though. <laughs> I, I like that anyway like um, so you have to get enough properties you have to get enough bank you have to get enough of all of, all of this it's only when I became a ruthless jackass that I started winning at that game like pay me bitch oh pay me again pay me again pay me again over and over and over again right but I had to change my natural inclination and that is the point. It's just a little anecdotal story to prove my point here. 
which is, you know, we as women, yes, we need to value our work, but it's not our fault that we don't value that. It is society mm -hmm. that has determined which um, work is more profitable and more valuable than others. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting when you brought up when you highlighted the fact that these young girls are freelancing and continue to freelance because more women continue into precarious work as they get older. Yeah. You know, um, the sharing economy or they're working part time or they're doing retail things because they have so many other responsibilities that men don't generally have. Yeah. And they're expected to take those responsibilities on as teenagers. Mm -hmm. So um, cooking meals for your younger siblings or something like that until mm. your parents get home or single parent gets home or whatever. Um, just, I can see how babysitting is so undervalued. Again, the people who actually do the work get shafted. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And it, it seems to start from when they're 12. That's what I learned today. I learned something today. Mm -hmm. That you're fucked from birth. Okay. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, on that note, the last thing uh, we're going to cover for This Week in Feminism is, well, you know, you guys, it's a day that ends in Y, so obviously there's another survey about how men feel regarding Me Too in the workplace, and I personally was hesitant to share another one of these, uh, but I did think that there were some points discussing, worth discussing in this one compared to previous ones. So the survey was conducted by Pew Research, and the sample was just over 6,200 adults in the U.S., and it found that when it comes to sexual harassment in the workplace, more Americans think, that, think men getting away with sexual harassment and female accusers not being believed are major problems than say the same about employers firing men before finding out all the facts or women making false accusations. Well, it's about fucking time. Mm -hmm. um, and so while these attitudes differ somewhat by gender, they mostly they most dramatically vary between Democrats and Republicans. So hold on to your hats <laughs> because this is probably the most funny and ridiculous part that I found of the whole thing. Many Americans believe that the increased focus on sexual harassment and assault poses new challenges for men as they navigate their interactions with women at work. About half... 51% say that the recent developments have made it harder for men to know how to interact with women in the workplace. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I find this just hilarious, okay? They're like, how do we treat women? Oh, I don't know, with dignity and respect, like, like human a, beings? Yeah, like you treat every other person. I'm like, what the fuck? Why is it so difficult? Why is this a difficult concept to grasp? Why, why are we asking? Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, only 12% of respondents say that this increased focus has made it easier for men, and 36% say that it hasn't made much difference. I mean, I guess. <laughs> I suppose. 55% <laughs> of men and 47% of women say that the recent developments have made it harder for men to navigate workplace interactions. But there is a large partisan gap on this question, with Republicans and Republican-leaning independents far more likely than Democrats, and 
Democratic leaners to say that the increased focus on sexual harassment and assault has made it harder for men to know how to interact with women in the workplace. Fuck off. Like, <laughs> what? So in this, in this large partisan gap, uh, most Republicans, or 64%, say that it is more difficult for men to know how to interact with women compared to only 42% of Democrats. And among adults aged 50, 65 and older, 66% say the heightened attention has made navigating workplace interactions more difficult for men. I'm shocked. <laughs> question. How many of those people are still in the workplace? Is that your no, that wasn't my question. <laughs> That's my um, question. What, what kind of jobs do you think these uh, adults age 65 and over are holding in the workplace? I mean, if they're still working, either they're very low level or they're very high level workers. Yeah. It's one or the other. Yep. You only work after 65 unless you're making bank or you have to make something. Yep. So, so, God help the people they report to if it's the other way. So, these executives, presumably, who yeah. are older baby boomers, yeah. say it's just too gosh darn hard to interact with women in you the know, workplace. I'm glad you brought up these fucking baby boomers, by the way, okay? <laughs> these baby boomers need to step the fuck aside. I'm sorry. <laughs> But I'm so sick of them. And, you know, the women are the worst. They're the ones that grew up with the, with the Stepford wife ideal. And, okay, this is what I get from female baby boomers. And you know what? At me, I don't give a shit. Okay? Now, there are those who this does not apply to. I'm not talking about you. But they're either, like, in the realm of Stepford wifey in terms of their idea about Me Too and sexual harassment and stuff. I'm not saying about everything. Or they are one of those women that we talked about earlier about having to be a man to get ahead. So if you decide that you don't want to go through that, then it's your fault. And you're just like, eh, no, okay? There's a new generation in town. Get the fuck out of the way. Because they're in our way now. These baby boomers. I'm so tired of these baby boomers waxing poetic about shit they don't understand, obviously. And then they'll tell you, oh, well, I was in the workplace for 40 years and blah, 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 blah. Do you know what? Speaking of a baby boomer. <laughs> she just readjusted her position. I just readjusted. <laughs> which means, She's leaning all the way in Which now. means watch out. I, I was at a talk when I used to work for government. And this woman was talking about female entrepreneurs and her research and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Come to find out that, so I chatted with her a little bit and talked about mentorship and stuff like that. And I don't know how it got on to black women. But basically she said, well, I've tried to mentor black women before, but they just seem to have a chip on their shoulder. Mm. I was like, bitch, what? Okay? Oh, and so fuck. I run into this woman later on, and she's talking about the budget or whatever, the federal budget, yeah. and at another talk. And let me just say, we got into a discussion about the police. And her thing was, oh, well, the police are so scared to do anything because they're afraid to be called racist. And that's, and me too is has gone too far. And I was just like, yeah, okay, baby boomer. Like, you grew up on a farm. Like, come on. Like, to be honest, 
I know that you've done well in, in corporate Canada and whatever. Good, fine for you. But let's just, perhaps you just don't understand a black woman's perspective. Perhaps you don't understand why women are speaking out about Me Too. You could say you don't understand. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Shut the fuck up and sit back and listen. But no, these baby boomers are just starting the Bernie Sanders of the world and, and Hillary. I'll throw her in there too. Okay, just seem to have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the fuck we're fighting for. That's well, and, and to your example, it's people who use their years of experience to silence other people's experiences. And it's like... Just years of existing isn't sufficient to, to like qualify you for like you know an, an opinion that trumps other people's like you know a lived experience is just as valid no matter how short lived it's been and and I think that's the that's my big contention with that generational divide for sure um, but I mean yeah to this survey question I, I mean if, I, I think it seems clear um, from these answers that. It's informed by a particular station, a particular class, um, and definitely um, a call, like an experience of a generation that um, where, I mean, for most of the working life of people 65 and older, there may not have been many women in their workplaces at all. Especially um, when they were forming yeah, in the workplace. Yeah, for sure, when they developed yeah. the habits and approaches that they've cultivated since. So um, it's, not, it's not that surprising. It's just... it's. It's unfortunate. Yeah, so um, just moving on quickly. Uh, half of Americans think that men getting in the way, getting away with this type of behavior is a major problem. Um, similarly, 46% see women not being believed when they claim to have experienced sexual harassment or assault as a major problem, which actually would kind of surprise me that mm -hmm. it was that high. Um, smaller shares see premature fire firings and false claims of sexual harassment as major problems with 34% and 31% respectively. May I just interject here? <laughs> this reminds me of people who think that being called racist is worse than the problem of racism. Mm -hmm. This is the same mm. type of that's this is the same type of thing. So premature firings or false claims are more important than the actual harassment. This is how they distract. Okay, next. Uh, 52% of women say that women not being believed is a major problem. I'm actually surprised that that's very low um, compared to 39% of men. And a 55% majority of women think that men getting away with sexual harassment is a major problem. Again, surprised that that's so low. 44% of men say the same. And roughly 60% Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents say that men getting away with sexual harassment and women not being believed when they claim to have experienced it are major problems, um, with only 33% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents seeing them as major problems. So, I think these... I, I don't like that they mix the genders in these surveys. I think it would be more illuminating if they actually separated men's responses and women's responses and actually um, divided them up into the Republican and Democrat lead, right, right. Republican lead, especially with the 65% and older, mm -hmm. I would, and maybe say a 40 and younger, mm -hmm. I would like to see those comparisons, to be honest. 
I find women, the low percentage of women, um, I think 52% of women say not believing, being believed is a major problem, 55% of majority of women think that men are getting away with sexual harassment is a problem. That is low. Yeah, it's surprising. Yeah. It is low. And the like I just wonder how one in terms of sexual harassment if if the internalization process for women mm-hmm. is like how that kind of plays into it. So you get harassed. Okay, so first of all, it always starts out as innocent and whoops and whatever. And, you know, putting his hand on your shoulder, whatever, and you not believing it yourself. And then, because I can't imagine that more women have not been harassed at work in general. So my question is why. Assuming that more than 55% or whatever of women have been harassed at work, make on that assumption, how come all of them don't see that or a majority of them don't see that as a problem? I think the, the issue is the question because the idea of men getting away with it, I think based on also the previous question about the number of people getting prematurely, so-called prematurely fired, I think a lot of people think that what's expected is that men will necessarily get fired or that there is like a severe penalty or, or criminal charges. Okay. Whereas I think a, for a lot of us, there's account, accountability. There's so many may, ways it can present itself. Um, but I think people reading the question may think men getting away with it is a major problem means getting a, like getting away from criminal charges or a firing. Right. So in other words, or a, the, the what harsh penalty. Away yeah, what is it getting mean? away? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even being named and shamed may not be what every survivor wants or is appropriate in every circumstance. I think a lot of people want an apology, an acknowledgement, a like recognition that something mm-hmm. was done. That all is suitable accountability in these circumstances. I think a lot of people reading this question probably think it's not, and they're expecting it being this sort of mm. much bigger thing. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, it which, could be which in is the an, which is an issue we're having now in the discussion. Like, but what does it, how does accountability present? Like, what would be meaningful? Accountability? But wasn't that the problem with the Chatelaine? Um, like that, some of the question, the Chatelaine survey, survey, the man survey that we talked about last month. Ish. Yeah, I mean, all these surveys have these sort of broadly phrased questions, mm-hmm. and you're kind of relying on the, yeah, that they, you know, every person being surveyed hears them and understands them in the same way. In the same way which they may don't. not, Which may yeah. not be true, and, right. and that, yeah, I mean, surveys will only get you so far, yeah. even if it's peer research. Yeah. Well, stay tuned for Rent and Receipts. Now we're moving on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring a story to share with the others. And I think Erica is going to get us kicked off here. Yeah. So this is a story that I have been keeping close watch on, but haven't really found um, the time or whatever, the right piece to really put it in. And I found it. So Press Progress um, wrote an article 
about rebel media and how the rebel media produced anti-Muslim propaganda with a foreign group funded by Trump's top donor. So, the rebel media, the Canadian alt-right website run by Ezra Levant and founded by Hamish Marshall, who was instrumental in the campaigns of Andrew Scheer, Patrick Brown, and Carolyn Mulrooney, partnered with an American far-right think tank bankrolled by Donald Trump's top donor, who is also a major funder of the global alt-right. These are the Mercers. I think I talked about them in another episode. Um, according to a recent report from Loblog, an American foreign policy website, Rebel Media produced a dozen cross-branded videos with the New York-based Gatestone Institute, an anti-Muslim organization that has long opposed the immigration of Muslims to the West. The Gatestone Institute was most recently in the news after John Bolton, who serves as the chairman of the far-right think tank, was tapped to serve as President Trump's national security advisor following the ousting of H.R. McMaster. I can't remember who McMaster was. There's so, there's so much turnover <laughs> and churn. I don't remember why he, anyway. And I do mean he. According to IRS filings between 2014 and 2016, the Gatestone Institute received a quarter of a million dollars from the Mercer Family Foundation, a fund run by billionaire Robert Mercer and his daughter Rebecca. The secretive Mercers are not only Trump's biggest donors, they, in addition to tr funding Trump's campaign, the Mercers were also a close ally of Steve Bannon, financing the far-right Breitbart News website and the big data firm Cambridge Analytica, as you know, is mm. now in that Facebook controversy yeah. for improperly using data, mm -hmm. personal data, to basically give, I guess, um, some sort of, of data-based analytics to these propaganda campaigns. Okay. So, in all, Rebel Media has now documented connections with three separate foreign entities that largely exist to promote anti-Muslim hate. And I put this in here because I really, really want to stress two things. Number one, if you think that Canada is not affected by Donald Trump, the money that has funded far-right entities, you are living in a dream world. Secondly, um, it's amazing to me that Canadian media has been silent on this issue, especially with Hamish Marshall and his mm -hmm. connections with the Conservatives, both federally and provincially in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, un it's unreal that people aren't digging deeper into those connections and trying to expose them. It should certainly be the job of all mainstream media to be after these kinds of angles. Um, it seems like, I mean, in terms of exposing bias, exposing um, just shady connections in general, and also just like profiling influential people, we don't do a very good job of that, of like digging into the backgrounds and being like, who is really at the, you know, heart of these power relationships in Canada. We don't do a very good job with that. Um, Press Progress is a wing of the Broadbent Institute, which is a left-leaning think tank. 
Um, and so they have that agenda and that perspective, but it's, it's absolutely really important work that I'm surprised hasn't been done before. It hasn't been yes. done. And like, I want to know where Hamish Marshall is at all times. I want to know every you. paper he's touching. Thank you. I want to know everyone he talks Thank to. Thank you. I want to know which lobby dinners he attends. Like, no, but, like, actually. I want to see who the fuck he shakes and, hands and with. And if this was Capitol Hill, we would know that. Like, well, that's people the have thing. their eye on Steve Bannon every time he fucking scratches his ass. Like, I want to know. I We need to know. It's like, it has consequences. And we need to know where the fucking money's coming from. Yeah. Because totally. where the money comes, the politics and the policy follow. Yep. So, so the Mercers, the whole thing with the Mercers was that they agreed to finance Trump in like the 11th hour of the campaign, like in August 2016 or whatever, on the condition that he hires Steve Bannon. Yeah. Like that was like a term of them like giving him funding, mm -hmm. as I understand it from my recollection of reading Fire and Fury, so who knows as to the accuracy. But, <laughs> but I need to read that. It's so good. I can only imagine. Any, <laughs> but like that's like the kind of like so who knows what other operatives they're implanting, like what they're yeah, again, like yeah, how far their reach is and I mean it, like no one look like we don't do a good job of like looking at the campaign officials on, on, like, you know, like, who is behind Andrew Scheer? Like, yeah. who is going to operate? Like, who is, who are his campaign managers? And that, that was an issue with, like, Patrick Brown. They're, like, after the scandal broke then, we started hearing about, here are the people who are around the table. Here are the influence players. Here's how they pushed him in this direction or, or asked him to resign. And it's like, that was really valuable. I wish I knew more about these people before the story broke, just as to have a better sense of, how things operate. The 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 top class in Canada is protected. They are protected by the media. Mm -hmm. I find it really interesting. I also want to bring this up to you. I think this this story has so many angles, but let us just say that some of the best investigative work on these issues are not done by corporate media, establishment media. No, no they're no. done by Basically, stuff that used to start off as blogs. Mm -hmm. yeah. Look at Refinery29 and how they've come from um, just being like a ah, like nice little fashion blog right. into talking about really good issues within the industry and they've moved past fashion. Mm -hmm. And I think about fashion law as another one. Um, press progress, all of these sort of investigative, um, like, digital platforms that are doing the work that establishment media mm -hmm. should be doing. And then establishment media wonders why we don't want to pay for their shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it partly for establishment media, it's like, the, like it's, it's a small community, it's very incestuous, um, and... People feel beholden to their sources in a way that's unhealthy. And that if we lived in a larger media landscape where CBC employed more people, for example, or the Post employed more people, or the Globe employed more journalists, you could have some who kept those connections close and other people went to fuck shit up, but they don't. Everyone plays, like, every journalist is wearing so many hats mm -hmm. and can't and has a sense that they can't alienate people, but they're also very chummy on a personal level. And so it just breeds this like a really terrible culture where no one, in, until, until something absolutely 
goes off the rails. No one is writing um, to expose the scandal before it happens. It's like after, after the damage is done, then they'll do a postmortem, but they're not doing yeah, the investigative research exactly. on the front end. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right, so for uh, my rent and receipts this week, I'm doing, um, in a, I guess we'll talk about the Julie Black um, calling out Jeannie Becker at the Canada Reads 2018. So um, this, this made my, this was life. It's, <laughs> it, it really was. It's such a unique moment in Canadian media. Um, and I, I mean, I wouldn't have seen it, but for this particular exchange, I wasn't going to watch Canada Reads, but now I'm kind of like, oh, well, that's like, that's clearly an important debate of, of substance happened there. And I think that's really awesome in a sense, but a great exchange. So Canada Reads is a live TV show that places five great Canadian books from the past year in front of a celebrity panel. So the panelists are selected they have to, they read each of the books and they choose one book to defend. And it's, it's kind of a really neat stage this year. There's like, they're all sitting around a circular table and the audience is like all around them and are just like debating face to face. And, and I, I mean, I think that's a really cool format and I think we really need more content like that in Canada. Um, so I'm super into it. And like, as a Brooke nerd, I'm, I regret that I hadn't watched it before this clip, but I like, I'm here for it. Had you re read any of the books they talked just, about? Just the one, okay. American War. Okay. Yeah. Um, during the finale of this this year's uh, running, Je Jeannie Becker, who's like a fashion television personality in Canada, which did, we can like get into. That's Jeannie Becker. Uh, was defending the book Forgiveness by Mark Sakamoto. Um, and she got into a heated debate with Julie Black, the singer um, who defended uh, Sherry uh, Dimelin's book, The Marrow Thieves. Um, and they sort of got into it about privilege and oppression and colonialism and what, what stories need to be heard and told. We actually have a clip. It's important for us to really look at what book is going to have Canada open their eyes to what is happening on today. And yes, we, we celebrate and we heal and we kumbaya and we light. Oh, but you know about what's you know what happening I mean? with ourselves. I mean, I mean this that's is a the good, yeah, we've got to change the world, but people are really there are a lot of like screwed up people in There's the world. There's a lot you know? of colonial There's privilege. There's a lot of people happening. that really this need, room right? excluded, of course. And this so, studio excluded. Yeah. And, and there's that's a mean, lot of people that have to work on themselves. I mean, when we there's see a lot of people who in their cottages in their homes and don't have an experience like others and think that it's well you know let me swipe my visa card and make a donation but I don't live this experience what are we doing to change the current circumstances we just had a pope say he's not saying I'm sorry to indigenous Canadians when he said that in 2015 it is happening right now I'm not saying it's it, got I, to change I, yes I, we forgive I believe in Jesus but why do are you others, attacking shall, me Julie you. why no, are no, you no. attacking it, me no, no I totally get what you're saying and I, I have ooh, 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 I'm ooh. Hold on, oh, we're live right now. Why are you attacking me? I'm not oh, attacking The truth I'm... hurts. I didn't say anything to attack you, Jeannie Becker. I said nothing oh, about Jeannie Becker. No, no, I, I'm just saying you're... I, Did I, I say feel anything about Jeannie Becker? I just feel that you're speaking to me um, like I, I don't believe that. I no, no. totally get what so you're saying. So let me saying. tell you what you just said. I feel like. So whatever you're feeling, take it to the altar, because I'm not the one that's responsible for your feelings. 
Holy shit. I don't even know where to begin with that clip. Everything about it is amazing. I just, I love it. I love that Julia Black just goes in on, on like she's not holding back about her, like why her book is the best book for addressing oppression, colonial attitudes. But then fucking Jeannie Becker has to pull that like, you know, hurt white woman shit and play the victim. This is typical of many interactions with white women, as I told you before, the chip on your shoulder comment. Because Jeannie Becker did not like what Julie Black was saying, she decided to silence her by playing the victim, therefore playing into that stereotype of the angry black woman, which plays into the stereotype of irrational, crazy, Black animals, yep. by the way, with no human training. And I use that in quotations. That is the evolution of this comment or this reaction by Jeannie Becker, who was shitty on fashion television anyway. <laughs> people, I, I'm surprised people stopped to talk to her. They're like, who the fuck is this? <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm surprised she's still relevant. I was shocked to see this. Clip. Who says she's relevant? Well, clearly CBC thinks she's CBC relevant. CBC is not the arbiter <laughs> of who's relevant of all. Actually, speaking of which, as an aside, so mm-hmm. CBC, so uh, a female was um, head of CBC was appointed this That's week right, yeah. for the first time in the company's history, which tells me how backward this fucking country is. But anyway, I digress. Um, what? was interesting to me was she said the greatest um the greatest challenge that they have is digital and i'm and digital disruption i'm like we're 10 years in yeah yeah at least (laughs) if not more you haven't figured that out yet what the fuck cbc Anyway, that's how relevant CBC is. They still think we use dial-up, apparently. <laughs> and to your earlier point, though, about her, like the experience of black women, I mean, Julie Black has written a beautiful blog post about her experience, about this in exchange. And she says, my personal goal was to make sure I could be an ally for indigenous communities and also make sure not to take up undue space. I wanted to be a champion of this book as a means to open Canada's eyes and to provoke an audience into making change for all of us. And goes on to say, throughout my career, I've become accustomed to being the only black person in the room. So I was in comfortable territory as a panelist on Canada Reads. But the reality <laughs> yeah. But the reality is I'm still a black woman. The same demeanor that earns my white peers superlatives like confident, assertive, has earned me labels like loud, angry, aggressive, and obnoxious. In my exchange with Jeannie Becker, I earned another label. For stating the actual, for stating a factual point, attacker. I've never been accused of attacking another person while having a conversation. To be accused of that on live television was, at the very least, antagonistic. Given our purpose for being on the show to passionately defend a book that we believe should be Canada's strongest literary work, it is it was completely inappropriate. And I think that's what she was doing. She was mounting a really passionate defense about something that most people are completely ambivalent to, if not offensively reactive to, and, and trying to expose, and talking about a book that addresses colonialism. Like, good on her for going in, like, guns blazing, and like, fuck you, Jeannie It was Becker. a racist. Totally. It was the a response was completely it racially was motivated. Yeah. Period. So now I think Jeannie Becker's a racist. But now, but the thing is, the problem is that she doesn't think that. 
she just thinks that she was like, her feelings were hurt and she was trying to defend herself. And being on the defensive, she decided to lash out and kind of just go. And be a racist? Go at her. She didn't want to be like, oh, like, withdraw. She wanted to be like, oh, I'm being attacked. I'm everything that I believe in and stand for, questionable, is under attack. So I'm going to go back on the offensive and be like, no. I disagree with you. But that wasn't on the offensive. You exactly. can't I know. play the victim exactly. and be on the offensive. Yeah. The whole and premise, the victimization yeah. that just irks me. The whole premise of the show is to debate issues. Like, so at no point, like, so yeah, you got called out for having a, like, for not prioritizing the thing that Julie Black is saying we should prioritize. That's the whole premise of the show. Like, she could have stayed on the line of arguing that addressing individual ills was the more important thing that literature asks us to do. That's a fine position. Keep on that. But then suddenly she made it as, like, oh, no, no, hurt white feelings. I do believe in the same causes as you. Why are you saying that I'm a racist? Why, like, you know? I will say I did really like how Julie Black used Jeannie Becker's full name. <laughs> yes. Because she's like, I'm not attacking you, Jean. The, the person. Yeah. yeah. Or you, what, who you are as, like, mm -hmm. an actual individual. What she was doing was attacking, like, her, like, belief system and, like, the lifestyle that she lives. Mm -hmm. but And the culture that she ascribes to. She, she, Fair game. I, I Fair game. I love that cottage comment. I love so, yeah. it. Because it is so everything. Mm -hmm. It is it is every privileged white person that votes NDP. <laughs> I swear to God. I am just like, yes, or votes green. And if they go to their cottages, they remove yeah. themselves from all those people and issues and isolate themselves and still think that their voice is as, as, as valuable as yours who's experiencing it and ing, not, mm -hmm. not in the past, but continually experiencing yeah. it. And they're like, oh, but I don't believe that. I'm a good person. Why are you attacking me? This is just so, every black woman was like, oh, every black woman saw Jeannie Becker and was like, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is why, and white feminism too does this a lot. It really does. And so every black woman was like, have you seen this? I'm like, yes, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, <laughs> like, I love that we're talking about it. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, it was a great Canadian, a rare Canadian moment of that it kind of It was a rare. Con Did you see the host? He almost, lost, he, oh all, my God. he almost shit himself. <laughs> he's like, this is not CBC approved. Well, yeah, because like, <laughs> he's just like a host. He's not a moderator either. Right? True. Actually, why mm. is he there? <laughs> Someone has to throw it a, throw it a my, commercial. My, <laughs> my new personal goal is for all three of us to be on next year's Canada Reads 2019. That I, means, no, no, that means Eric <laughs> would have to read a book. Yeah. Oh. yeah. No, no, no. I, I've, been, I've, I've said that just, I don't yeah. do books. <laughs> no. Not because I don't like, like reading books. It's yeah, just that I it's, consume so much content that fair. I don't... I take breaks because I consume too much other Exactly. Content. I have to be in the right frame. Exactly. So my rent and receipts this week um, is, well, my rent and receipts this week is a piece in the Washington Post inspired by a piece in Vulture. So the Vulture piece was titled, How 50 Famous Female Characters Were Described in Their Screenplays. 
So we'll go through a couple examples. So um, for Sarah Connor from Terminator, mm -hmm. in the screenplay is described, Sarah Connor is 19, small and delicate featured, pretty in a flawless, accessible way. She doesn't stop the party when she walks in, but you'd like to get to know her. Her vulnerable quality masks a strength even she doesn't know exists. Oh my god, that's so painful. <laughs> um, and then... Do one more, do one more. Let's see, where's <laughs> a good one? These are, that was so painful to listen to. Actually, you know what we're going to do? Sarah Connor in Terminator 2. Okay. okay, I'm ready. So this is one movie away. Okay. Sarah Connor is not the same woman we remember from last time. <laughs> Her eyes peer out through a wide, wild tangle of hair like those of a cornered animal. Defiant, <laughs> defiant and intense, but skittering around looking for an escape at the same time. Fight or flight. Down one cheek is a long scar from just below her eye to her upper lip. Her voice is a low and chilling monotone. Well, at least it's more on theme. Um, Ooh, George R. R. Martin. Oh, I don't like it. So, if we go to the Washington Post piece, the title of this is, If Male Authors Described Men in Literature the Way They Describe Women. Leo Tolstoy. Actually, no. Ernest Hemingway. Mm. He had a butt that looked good. She grasped the butt with her hands. He was a bit put out, but not too much. This was how things went between men and women. Jesus. Jack Kerouac. His lovely, ripe pectorals were barely concealed beneath his white nightshirt. And Dean looked at me as if to say, if this is America, I'd like to see more of it. Oh my god, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna read Jaws. <laughs> Wearing nothing at all, the shark emerges from the water. We can't help but be fixated on his on this toothsome vision of beauty. Our eyes are drawn first to his mouth, large and sensuous, full of even white teeth. But then they're drawn along his body's sleek curves, a body that throbs. <laughs> with raw sensuality and hunger, like an automobile that throbs with raw sensuality. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my God, that's to juxtapose to the Sarah Connor one, we're going to describe the Terminator, mm. large but delicately framed, with a pinprick red eye that lights up when he enters a room. He stops the party when he walks into a room. <laughs> by killing the party with his mechanized weaponry. <laughs> but you wonder what lurks under that steely exterior. Oh my gosh, they even have the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to. With soft peach fuzz skin, Kermit the Frog <laughs> no. intrudes on the viewer's attention, not gradually, but all at once. <laughs> Unaware of his impact and stronger than he knows. Luke Skywalker in, in Star Wars A New Hope. Luke Skywalker is in his late teens. Pretty, without knowing it. Mm -hmm. Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Ferris isn't the hottest guy in the class, 
But he's definitely top five. <laughs> I don't even think Ferris Bueller is top five, but he's definitely the funniest. I was thinking the same thing. Like he, he looks like he could take him home to mommy. Anyway, I just wanted to show <laughs> We're just derailing. the difference between how women characters are described and how preposterous it is, preposterous it is um, compared to how men are described and how ridiculous it would be if we described men in the same way that we describe women. Or animals, apparently. Or animals. And Muppets. Yeah. Inanimate, not real objects. Exactly. Oh, what a fucking debacle. Um, Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, You can find us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook.com slash Bad and B Podcast, and email us for our feminist advice column, Dear Bitches. If you have any questions, if uh, you want to suggest an article. And as always, we'd like to thank Media Style for letting us use their space. They are a progressive public affairs agency located in Ottawa, a social enterprise making Canada a better place. Any parting words, Sam? I'm going to take some Advil. Oh no, are you not feeling well? My back. Oh. Yeah. Too much leaning in. Too much leaning in. I don't know how Cheryl does it. Talk to you guys next time. Bye! Bye. 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 B